Hello, and welcome to the Eurowide, episode 84 for the week of April 20th, 2020. I'm Ben Smith, and I'm joined today by Mike McComb. Hey, Mike. Hello. And our special guest, Ned Raggett. Hey, Ned. Hey there. We are a group of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest, and this week we'll be talking about Eurovision and Poptimism. Ned, you are not usually on the program. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Thank you 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 for for joining us. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. Glad to be here. So who are you and why do we have you on our program? (laughs) Who am I? A question I've asked myself now for almost 50 years. Well, maybe not so deeply. Um, More seriously, uh, I am, among other things, uh, I have written professionally about music uh, for, gosh, something close to... Over 20 years now is the best way to put it. I'm not a staff writer anywhere. I never have been. This has strictly been uh, regular freelance writing on a variety of fronts. And when people ask me what type of music I like, I say everything, which is kind of true. Um, I, 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 I like all kinds of stuff. I mean, quite literally, a few minutes before we were recording this, I was listening to uh, some very, very bizarre avant-garde uh, drone music that, trust me, would not be featuring on Eurovision anywhere at all, I assume. Mm-hmm. And I was liking it just as much as the best of Eurovision has to offer. I, I like stuff. I like sound, um, is the best way to put it. And I write about things that interest me and intrigue me. Cool. Another important question. So how did you get into Eurovision? I've been racking my brain about this, and I really don't know. I think the first time I even realized tangentially, but only tangentially, that there was such a thing as Eurovision would have been the specific Monty Python skit that is parodying Eurovision (laughs) that's in one of their original series episodes. But at the time when I saw it, and it would have been 13, 14, when I heavily got into into Monty Python, that was back in the mid-80s, thanks to all the repeats, um, you know, I just thought it was this bizarre comment on some sort of um, some sort of pageant or whatever. I had no idea that this was a very specific, like, targeted reference about Eurovision and judging the way it was set up in the late 60s and early 70s. Somewhere along the line, in the future past that, I think I, you know, got a sense of, there's this thing. And every so often you heard about people who won it and went on to fame. Celine Dion being a very good example. Like, where'd she come from uh, when she started having hits in the 90s? And there was mention, she won this thing called Eurovision. And I'm like, okay. You you, you pick up this stuff and eventually it all starts to gel. And probably by the mid to late 2000s, I had a real sense of, okay, got it. it. It's this thing. I understand it now. And then after that, I started watching it fairly regularly. And I had to say anything that was sort of my got it moment was somehow, even though I had never really paid attention to them, I am pretty sure it would have been Lordy. I am pretty positive it would have been Lordy winning because there's like, hey, there's this heavy metal band that's going to win Eurovision. And I'm like going... What? <laughs> so, yeah, because that's a very strange I had to see what was going on. And it was definitely, I think, just even the screen grab of wearing that little hat with a Finnish flag on it mm-hmm. while in full, the full outfit. And I'm just like, what is this genius and why am I not watching it more often? Yeah. And after that, it was pretty much like, okay, I'm in. Whatever's happening, I'm in. And I, I, I will roll with this and we'll see what's going on from here. So that's probably, at that point, definitely uh, was the full commitment moment. And I haven't missed one since. And like, I'm not sure what it is about being age 13 and really getting into Monty Python, but absolute same. And like, it took me until <laughs> recently to realize, oh, Bing Tittle Tittle Bong is their response to Lulu. <laughs> they, they knew what they were doing. They always did. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, it should be a yeah. fantastic conversation, I'm guessing, particularly since we were going to be looking at like how rock and pop and Eurovision and all of that kind of 
crosses the streams, I guess might be a way of uh, mm-hmm. describing it. But uh, we do have uh, some news items to kind of zoom through first. A lot, a lot of calendar things. So your stream 2020 is uh, still a thing happening. And uh, yeah, uh, if you heard our announcement last week. Uh, and or watched the video where our faces appeared. That yes, very yes. Weird for me, even though I was the person <laughs> who sat down on my couch on a Saturday and recorded a bunch of takes doing that. <laughs> yes, uh, we, we are not just voices in the ether. We do have faces. But um, yeah, uh, the first event, uh, as you're listening to this, uh, uh, will be later today with the first semifinal draw. Uh, the second semifinal draw will be happening next Tuesday, and then it gets into the actual competition the week after that. This thing's coming up fast. But uh, yeah, if you go to Eurostream2020.com, you'll, you can get all the information there. Uh, if you're interested in uh, participating as a presenter, uh, they are accepting audition videos. Uh, there's more information at the Eurostream website. Last week, we talked a little bit about the OGAE voting uh, and had late breaking news that voting was actually going the to be happening. voting had actually opened and they yeah. were doing a thing. <laughs> yeah, it was like the first time in our history where the news didn't uh, come in like 30 seconds after we finished recording. So that was nice. But uh, um, this year, they are opening the voting to the full public. Uh, the way that they're doing it is the individual OGAE groups will be the jury part of the score and then mm. the general public will be the public part of the score. So uh, we will get some form of winner out of that contest, uh, along with all of the other (laughs) fan-driven contests. (laughs) (laughs) Polls and national programs and things that popped up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Mm. uh, maybe there will be consensus. I kind of doubt it, but uh, we'll we'll, we'll see how that rolls. There'll be a total war uh, between all the end results. It's like, who actually got it right? And that can be the great debate that'll echo down through time. Mm. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we are going to be arguing about who would have won Eurovision 2020 until the heat death of the universe. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely true. And like, it's going to be it's going to be in the clip show next to them ripping the skirts off a Bucks fizz. There we go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Will it be as visually dramatic? Who knows? But <laughs> either that or it'll just be these like forked timelines that are happening, and one's going to be like the Iceland timeline, one's going to be the Lithuania timeline, and one's going to be the oh, I don't know, Latvia timeline. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Let's go with the Samantina timeline. Yeah, I because I really want to see what that timeline is like. Oh, yeah, <laughs> great, great. Yeah, Euro Eurovision Endgame. That's what we got here. So. <laughs> Yeah, it was announced on Sunday uh, that Eurovision in Concert has rescheduled for next year. Like, they have a date, and it is going to be April 10th. Uh, if you got tickets for this year's performance concert, those tickets are still valid. Um, <laughs> More information to come, because that's next April. <laughs> yeah, I, but yeah, it, I don't know. It seems weirdly optimistic to me i i don't know it seems like they're really kind of tempting fate by like actually trying to nail down a date mm-hmm. 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 yeah wow. <laughs> yes as, as someone who has had multiple plans this this calendar year uh just understood that oh that's that's what all the laughing was that was god laughing at my plans yeah yeah <laughs> i don't know when they announced that the opening ceremony this year was going to be in a cruise terminal i was like wow the dutch do not fear god so um <laughs> Clearly not. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear. But, <laughs> but fingers crossed that that's going to happen. But uh, yeah, we'll mm. just see how that plays out. Let's see. Another date to throw at you. Uh, the album has been pushed back another week. It's originally supposed to have dropped, I think, this past Friday, uh, then got pushed to May 8th. It's now getting released on May 15th. So uh, up- update your Google alert if you have that. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, And then on May 16th, uh, 45 broadcasters will be airing the Eurovision Europe Shine a Light special, which is the alternate program that the EBU has uh, devised uh, to honor this year's contestants that won't actually get to compete at Eurovision. All 41 participating nations will broadcast it in some way, shape, or form. Uh, (laughs) UK, I am shading you right now because they are uh, kicking it to their online player only. So um, a lot of grumbling on Twitter about that. Um, Mm. Bosnia and Herzegovina, Kazakhstan, Kosovo, and Montenegro will also be uh, showing the special. And uh, who knows, they may announce a few other broadcasters uh, as the date gets closer. So um, yeah, that should be an interesting program uh, to watch. And again, a lot of the countries are also devising their own uh, Eurovision-themed programming that week. Uh, Australia is doing a whole week of programming uh, all mm. about the contest. So yeah, check your local listings. It, it, mm-hmm. uh, there should be something fun on uh, during that time. Then uh, I'm not sure if this is a Eurovision in a, in the wild. It's certainly a Eurovision in a way that's relevant to today's episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kelly Clarkson has a new single coming out, and she's duetting with a lot of global people. Uh, there was just sort of looking at the the release for that. There is an Italian artist. There's an Arabic artist. Lots of different things, including a multilingual version. She premiered it on her talk show, and one of the people she was duetting with was Blas Canto, Spain's entry this year. That, uh, yeah, based on his song, (laughs) that was an entry. (laughs) That's not making me rush to listen to this duet, unfortunately, but that's just me. (laughs) I mean, I I listened to it a few times before the show. It's, It's not my favorite Kelly Clarkson song, but it's nice. Mm. it's nice it's very it, it fits well in her oeuvre yeah i thought it was fine and i don't know his, his song's kind of growing on me he's certainly not the draw on this track <laughs> I, I would say like it's it always will be kelly clarkson but <laughs> right, right. right you know still you know game effort credit to him he, he, mm-hmm. he, he he's trying yeah <laughs> he's doing things he's getting his name out there yeah, yeah, you might as well. I mean, that's that's the interesting thing to me is that how do these artists, you know, now they have this year's worth of suspension, we now know all who they are, and been racking my brain. It's like, what are they going to fine tune? What are they going to change? What will be different next time? I I hope they don't all go boringly serious, even with everything going on, because that would just no, <laughs> that would be bad. Oh man, like yeah. I can absolutely see that happening, and that would be a real downer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> boy, we'll just have to see where the future gets us. But yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> I, I was thinking this year was going to be more of a party year than a serious year. And so next year was mm. probably going to be a more serious year regardless. But yeah, I, mm. I agree that like it needs to be. I don't know if party is the right tone, but up upbeat and up tempo would be a better choice. Right. Fingers crossed, right. please. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I you know the the assumption yeah, assumptions are bad things right now, mm-hmm. but the assumption are this seems to be that you know in a year's time we'll have a much clearer idea of what's going on, shall we say, on mm-hmm. the health front and national reactions to it and things like that. So you know it won't be as 
free-floatingly as it is right now precisely because nobody knows it's that it's the it's the not knowing to quote a favorite song by the tinder sticks uh that uh that is the real issue here so by that time you know we'll have a sort of stronger sense of things hopefully hopefully you don't you don't know how something's going to end until you reach the end simple as that Mm -hmm. with that sort of as, as a jumping point and then also one thing that came to mind is the the recent trolls movie also kind of brought the whole <laughs> rockism versus poptimism back to the forefront at least in like the three reviews i read <laughs> uh, I, I didn't i have no desire to watch this movie but i but <laughs> but you're I, on I, the street I, team for some reason <laughs> but i'm on the street team for some reason um <laughs> yeah. look i clicked the facebook ad i thought i was getting stickers um <laughs> um but but yeah, so like I have my RSS feeder tuned to a bunch of music sites and everybody had a take on this. But it it was an interesting thought of, of how has poptimism sort of helped the profile of Eurovision rise mm. in the US? Because for a long time, it was just sort of a an answer to a trivia question. It was where did ABBA come from? It was where did Celine Dion come from? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think it's definitely something that has helped the rise of Eurovision in like the last decade or so in the US. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to talk about maybe just to sort of like uh, talk about what optimism is, because yes. uh, that's a term <laughs> that I think has <laughs> it it takes on new shapes, I guess, with time. Yes. But, uh, well, but, well, yeah. And like I was throwing that around with Mike and learned that Mike just did not actually know what optimism was before I mm-hmm. brought this up as a topic. It's, it's rooted in something that's actually about Fort. Actually, I'm an actually guy now. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Um, <laughs> uh, that it is rooted in something that is now around 40 years old. And I'm not going to get the specifics of this exactly right. The term optimism ultimately comes from music critic angst is the best way to put it. It is not something that comes from, shall we say, it's not populist, which is hilarious. It is not something that actually is sort of like a recognition of the people. It's more of the people who write about music trying to get to grips with the fact of why do people like what they like, with the subtext for a long time being, and why do the people have such terrible taste as opposed to me, the music critic who has such wonderful taste, which is, again, a stereotype. But it's a stereotype that has a real grounding in a lot of things unpacking everything about music journalism, music criticism, the relationship to criticisms, the arts would take forever. And we're only looking at one particular general art form. So again, I'm heavily oversimplifying here, but in English language terms, at least, and that is important. This is an English language discussion is that in the early eighties, um, there were writers, uh, for the music press in, uh, in the UK, uh, that especially in the turn of the eighties, when what was seen as a broadening of musical scope, uh, beyond what had been heavily valorized for a long, long time, ever since the, uh, modern musical critical press had sort of like come to, come to terms and come to grips with things, uh, through the late sixties and onward was the idea that, oh, centering music around rock and roll or rather rock as it really became codified in the seventies, which meant your dude with a guitar singing you the truths of meaning and everything, man. And again, Heavy oversimplification. Massive. But the idea was that there was a reaction to this in this particular sphere among these particular people. I mean, you know, again, this is a narrow, narrow casting. This is not a broad reaction. It's more like the early 80s, you basically get music critics going, a number of them, especially younger ones, not all of them, but a number of them going, what's the deal with this? Why is it centered around the idea that truth is only found here in this particular model? And so the idea is that if you kept doing that, if you 
put rock at the center, then you were committing essentially rockism. And the term just dreamed up as a bit of a riff, clearly, on racism. Uh, and again, I'm heavily oversimplifying the history, and I'm not doing it real justice here. This is just me giving a just general, this is what you got. Mm-hmm. So this term emerges and kicks around and doesn't really go anywhere much beyond this particular context in the 80s and then onward. It's not something that really sort of takes broad effect. It's more something that emerged at this time and was something that is in these debates in print, which if you're a writer and a reader, that's fine. If you are a listener and not really following this particular slice of the music press, you don't care, or rather this term does not bother you. It just simply doesn't come up. And it just it's just simply something that, again, as with so much critical discussion, to be frank, exists not intrinsic to the charts, not intrinsic to the nature of music development, but just simply as a parallel discourse discussion off to the side. That's the important thing to remember. So take it ahead now, 20 years, early 2000s. In a weird sense of how history came around again, and I'm not saying that I was there when it happened, man, but to a degree (laughs) I was, to a very small degree. Um, What happened was that uh, due to a combination of technology, the internet, more and more writers, old and new, getting online, and more people trying to figure out just sort of places to talk about things. And so this is a just pre-social media moment. This is very important to note. In the early 2000s, you had a number of folks, including a group of people coalescing around a music discussion board, which is still going, and I'm still there, um, called I Love Music. And it's had various hosts and things like that since then. And explaining why it was called that would take forever, blah, blah, blah. But it's an outgrowth of a uh, friend of mine's project, Freaky Trigger, my friend Tom Ewing. Tom is a very broad-minded listener, always has been. And he's very good at both interrogating his own taste and considering how things can change and taking it all in. He's a very generous listener. And so I Love Music was an outgrowth, a discussion forum based off of Freaky Trigger, the site, uh, his music slash criticism discussion site. And so a whole bunch of people join in, including a number of people who had grown up on the 80s press, who had participated in the 80s press, um, things like that. Newer writers, upcoming writers, a lot of people who were just starting to sort of find their feet were there, and other people were reading and joining in. So it was a broad swath of writers, readers from both England and America, the UK, I should say, more accurately, the UK broadly, and America, Ireland, etc., the Anglosphere, much more broadly. So you had Canadian participants, etc. So again, this is a good part of where it all came together. But the idea of a, well, rockism sort of came back. People were sort of like going, especially with the rise, the clear, clear, inevitable almost world-dominating rise of hip-hop being where a lot of the action was mm-hmm. on the charts, mm-hmm. everything like that, is sort of like, well, wait a minute, why, why again is rock so prioritized? What's going on? And so the idea of poptimism as a term comes up. It used to be quote-unquote popism, but then pop, poptimism sort of made more sense. It's a classic catchy term. But the idea of it is, what is the opposite of rockism? If rockism is something that's meant to be exclusionary, you know, here is the pure form of music, oh, and then there's everything else. Poptimism is taking a different stance. It's not necessarily the exact opposite stance. Poptimism is, we can like that too, but we can see the advantage of anything and everything. If something is enjoyable, 
let's talk about why we enjoy it. Something should not be horrible just because it's massively popular. Something is shouldn't be considered to be automatically horrible because it is incredibly well known. Um, because again, that's a lot of what sort of was fed into at least this perception of if you were a raucous, you're sort of like, why are you listening to that commercial crap instead of like the real music man? You know, this is mm-hmm. again a further further addition onto things. You could argue it was as much of an extension of what happened in the '90s when you know what is alternative. If alternative is in fact commercially successful and scoring number one albums is it really alternative. I'm being very reductive here, but this gives you an idea of what's happening. So the idea was that you had a massive number of writers that came out of this milieu who have written for everywhere. I mean, I don't want to... I, I could name names, but the list would take forever. But we're talking about writers who appeared in, whether it's The Guardian over in the UK or in uh, in various other venues over there. It's Pitchfork over here. It is eventually Rolling Stone. It is eventually, you know, many other spots, many other uh, places where, uh, where music discourses happened. And you have a swath of writers coming out and basically arguing this corner, saying, hey... If this is enjoyable, not that if something is successful and well-known, that automatically gives it value. That, I think, is the stereotype of optimism. Like, you only like something because it is popular. Not true. The idea is sort of like, hey, if something is successful, if I enjoy it, let me talk about why I enjoy it. If it is more broadly enjoyed, let's talk about why it's more broadly enjoyed. Let me give you a good example of one of these writers who sort of came up in this milieu. That would be Chris Melanfi who both mm-hmm. through his Hit Parade podcast on Slate and the associated, semi-associated, although the series started first, Why Is the Song Number One series for Slate? He basically says, okay, something is massively successful. Let's talk about why that is. And if he doesn't like it, he'll say so, but he will say we can still look at something and discuss why something is popular. And again, Chris is just one writer in one context. There are many other writers I can name. Maura Johnston, of course, a regular guest with you guys every year and a wonderful, wonderful person, is someone else who is uh, who is very much has embraced that uh, is embraced that idea of like, yeah, you know, let's talk about things that are popular in its context, why things are as huge as they are, why things are as successful as they are. Mm-hmm. So... That's a whole lot of background on optimism. I could go on. I think of it in the terms of just we can talk about the way that we talk about craft and the talk about construction of rock music. We can do that that same thing with a pop song. And that's become Mm -hmm. a huge thing with things like Songland on NBC. Hey, let's peel back the 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 bones on this and see how that is how that comes together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is a very well-observed point. Yeah, craft, I think, is is uh, a key part of it. And I think the idea of judging, why does music work, <laughs> might mm-hmm. be the way to put it. And the advantage of something like this, let me put it in maybe good terms for Eurovision, is that in reviewing, as I was doing earlier today, literally all the entries that would have been up this year, there were a lot of entries that sort of like, okay, this is the key change, and here's where it'll go up a register, and here are these elements, the, the, the thir- certain sonic touches are deployed exactly where you expect them to be deployed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's in the finessing of that or in the way that elements can go skew with each other that makes something interesting. Otherwise, it can be something where it's sort of like, you know, it's an obvious move, but it's done so well, you can't resist it. And then there are other times when it's sort of like, okay, they're doing exactly what I expect them to do, and it's just there. It adds nothing. There's nothing unique about it. There's nothing interesting. So you, you, we can talk about songs in this fashion, and part of the joy comes in sort of recognizing these touches. And it's not how these touches are 
quote-unquote always used. It's how they differ. It's how things can be used or not used, or how some things, some elements are not included in a song or can be included in a song, and how people bring in different things from different contexts, whether it's the songwriters, whether it's the performers. You know, these elements are all, I think, very, very key. So the conflict between rockism and poptimism, is it... I'm still trying to wrap my head around the concept where it's, it, <laughs> is it that pop music isn't worthy of that discussion or that the mechanics, like talking about the I mechanics think, of songcraft aren't, aren't worthy of discussion? No, this is a fair yeah. question. And I would say that, uh, I would say that the first element is stronger than the second. I will say this though, before we get into this, I think a lot of this can be generational. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of it is the type of thing that as time goes on, especially, again, as, you know, the 20th century, 20th century, excuse me, the 21st century, <laughs> clearly, in terms of where the, you could say, the innovation, where the lingua franca, where the idea of what is the sort of central, most popular music going on, you could say that in two broad terms in America, they have been in two very particular fields. There's country, which mm-hmm. to a large degree has taken over the trappings of rock and roll. Dudes with guitars, not entirely, of course, etc., things like that. So you could say its spirit lingers on in there and is a very, very strong through line, of course. We see this. You know, this is something you know if you're in America in particular. And you can see how these certain performers grow out of that uh, to uh, to embrace uh, more worldwide followings. But then you've got hip-hop, clearly. And by hip-hop, that is just such a huge umbrella for so many different things that are happening now. It goes so many different directions and incorporates so many different things and is the type of thing that everything eventually seems to point back to it, including country, of course. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. The past decade in particular, it's sort of like you have too many people, too many young performers. When I say too many, I mean who are growing up that in the same way that in the 90s, you had country performers growing up who basically had grown up on 70s, uh, 70s classic rock. Uh, famously, mm. Garth Brooks was a massive Kiss fan. There's a reason why his shows were the way they were, right. and uh, and uh, that's one example. Now you have uh, now you have uh, country singers coming up, and what are, were they listening to in the in the 2000s? They were listening from there. It could be Jay Z. It could be Destiny's Child. More that's more R and B. I grant you, but uh, but it could be it could be Eminem. It could be. All these ma- massive artists of that time and newer ones, and that's the thing. You you can't ignore that, I guess, is the, is the way to put it. So getting back, though, to your point, Mike, yes, there is still an attitude, and it's strong, unfortunately, among, how to put it, uh, older listeners, not solely, older writers, not solely, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot, a lot of them that basically sort of see as the idea that, you know, rock and roll is, is still the center. It's still what it is. It's still the truth. It's like, yeah, but the sands are shifting un- from under you. Um, <laughs> the things, things are changing. And again, this is a heavy oversimplification of generations and mm-hmm. whatever, what everyone was listening to. Everyone should always be in massive quotes. Right. That's mm-hmm. it. It's more like who's, who's doing the talking and who has the amplified voices to be able to hear that. I think things have changed, but they've changed at a glacially slow pace. Good example here. If we want to use the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as some sort of mark, mm-hmm. the fact that Depeche Mode just got in after 40 years, 
I was just about to say an, a really good example of where this hits is is both Depeche Mode just getting in and also the fact that Niall Rogers and Sheik were nominated nine times mm-hmm. and have not gotten in as a full band like they let Niall Rogers in on, on like a special award that I thought was kind of BS you're not alone and it's very <laughs> important to note too because a lot of people basically say that that Rock and Roll Hall of Famers are they're idiots for not like loading them in as, as has to be pointed out it was the nominating committee who basically was saying for years going no now Russia's chic now just hello you know hello. yeah hello yeah. they have to be in and then it went out to the voters who are not the rock and roll hall of fame core folks that's the voting pool and the voting pool clearly was like disco music and it's like you just get frustrated um i will say that part of the reason why we're now seeing bands like depeche and whitney and mm-hmm. many other people, Notorious B.I.G., etc., in these recent years coming in, is that uh, they made a very conscious move a couple of years ago. Kind of the same thing that they did with the Oscars. It's like, let's expand the voting pool <laughs> and let's get more people in there. And uh, that's how I ended up in the voting pool these past couple of years. And, you know, it's I'm one of a lot of people. But the point is, they basically started aiming for slightly younger folks to be part of it and when i say slightly keep in mind i'm about to turn 50 next year so you know i'm I'm more in the middle but the point is they were reaching out to have sort of a broader range of people people like myself who have been through this discussion and who for the entire part of our lives are sort of like what what, you know we don't buy this idea that rock is the center we just don't Mm -hmm. you know we Mm -hmm. there's a lot we can love about it but it's not the only thing and to turn to your second point mike is that, yes, the idea is there is, I think, a more respect, more newfound respect for craft. Why does a pop song work? Why does something connect? And that appreciation can move in different ways, I think, uh, in terms of uh, discourse and discussion. You will get people, I think, who sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater in response. Poptimism does not exactly have uh, as much cachet as it did. And in terms of an ethos, precisely because you get people who basically are going, why are you only talking about popular stuff when that's misreads what's going on? It's more like, no, something is popular. That means we should at least consider it somewhat seriously. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't rule out talking about things that are quote unquote unpopular or critical darlings or anything like that. I mean, more I mentioned more earlier and mentioned Chris Malanfi, another excellent writer I would name, Michelangelo Matos, a lot of younger writers who are coming up, Brittany Spanos uh, at Rolling Stone, many, many more. The th- key thing with all of them is range. They talk about mm. lots of things they love. They talk about obscure stuff they love, and they talk about very popular stuff they love. And the point is they can do so with uh, with facility, adeptness, and understanding and depth. And again, I'm just I named uh, just a few writers there. There are so many more I can name. So the idea is is that people see when discussion happens about these figures. Uh, about, again, you know, big, big pop acts and assume that it's just sort of like that's all, quote unquote, all that's being talked about. No, that is that is not the case. The one thing that has to be kept in mind on top of that, though, and I'm really piling this on here, but we have to just keep this in mind in terms of what's going on, is that the marketplace is its own thing. And as we all know, Mm -hmm. marketplace for journalism is terrible and has been for years it's accelerated even more this year um mm-hmm. but it just basically the writing's been on the wall and this discussion that i mentioned is the type of discussion that for the most part is happening on a casual level whether it's social networking private discussion things and all the rest of it but in terms of the published stuff who tends to most attention usually the people with the money and who has the money the big acts so that becomes its own sort of vicious cycle and that's why sometimes it could seem like we're only talking about the popular stuff 
not the case. <laughs> Never right. has been the case. But yeah. that's just the one thing to keep in mind. Yeah, you need, you need Taylor Swift and Katy Perry to get the clicks so that you can get the other content viewed. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, well, yeah. And just thinking about, because I've been reading Pitchfork, I think, for probably 12 years and just seeing the way that that has shifted from being super, super, mm-hmm. super indie mm-hmm. to now talking about the big pop acts as much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, mean, I think, I think that's a part of that might change. just be that they got picked up by Condé Nast and are now a Condé Nast publication. Right. Mm-hmm. To give you an idea of how it can twist around, and I think this is a really interesting synthesis, is very notably and famously, they just uh, reviewed, they did their first literal 10 out of 10 review for the first time in a literal decade um, mm-hmm. the other day, and that yes. was for the new Fiona Apple album. And again, you have somebody who has always been a pop figure, but notably, this album is a thorny, naughty, weird album <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Yes, so it's a, yes. It, interesting combination of you know what what do you do when you have somebody who is somebody who people know who she is combined with the fact that sonically is doing things that are very 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 weird in a pop context mm-hmm. very important and this leads back i mentioned to Mode earlier one of my favorite ever quotes about music and pop music and how pop music can function ever from Martin Gore of Depeche Mode, their main songwriter. And the quote, I, I don't have the exact wording. It's one of those things that's almost come down in legend, but it was something from, uh, done back in the 80s, and it's floating around out there. I'm going to, this will be a slight paraphrase. And he basically said, and this ties in, I think, to Eurovision perfectly, I should note. He said, if, if you call yourself a pop band, you can get away with murder. Mm. <laughs> Meaning, if you aim for it, that means you can try anything try everything and anything and instead of being like you know sort of like i'm dedicated to this art or i'm dedicated to this craft which has its place the idea is sort of like we're a pop band we want the world <laughs> we'll try everything at least once yeah. or you can and that i think is a very good thing that describes to a strong degree depeche when they were more overly experimental trying things out but at the same time also is an incredibly good description of pop pop can try anything <laughs> and yeah. eurovision <laughs> can try anything and has <laughs> yes, and does eurovision, yes and eurovision has tried so many things <laughs> just thinking about this year because you finally have two very big trends finally entering the eurovision uh billy eilish-esque music uh, yes, happening at Eurovision definitely. faster than I expected it to. I expected to not hear that until 2021. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, Armenia's entry this year has like a whole trap pop element going on. Yeah, they've been there. Ha- there has been some trap already, though, in the past few years, though. I mean, I'm thinking of entries. I'm you know, this is where your guys's memory is better than mine. But there, there have been there have been like like choruses and little elements and things like this. But yeah, I think you're right. There's a stronger embrace. I think it's one of those things, again, as pop forms have more of a lingua franca uh, in uh, terms of, in terms of widespread stuff, people will just start using it more, I mm-hmm. guess is the best way to put it. Eurovision in the U.S. really seems to have happened in the last decade or so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mentioned Lordy for me, but I can sort mm-hmm. of mention where it happened for at least one other person I know. But I think there's sort of like sometimes... It's a combination of uh, you mentioned technology, and I think that's mm-hmm. very true. The yeah. idea that uh, that uh, you know, if you want comparative points of view, I think this might be a good way to look at it. We're seeing more of a broad uh, reach of specialization, even in, as audiences fragment. They say, but more and more people find that they're part of a greater continuum than they realized. Um, a really good example, say on a sports comparison here, which may seem strange, but I think there's a relevance. 
in the same way that Eurovision has, you know, reached a certain thing where people know what's going on, et cetera, and all that, um, on a different but a broad level, you have what's going on with uh, with soccer or football, non-American football, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yes. uh, it's more than the popularity of the World Cup. In the same way that you guys mentioned, hey, you know, we can now see oh, so many of these uh, regional competitions, these, uh, you know, individual country competitions for their entries for Eurovision, a 10 years ago, when if you were trying to keep an eye on the coverage of, say, whether it was the Premier League or La Liga or Serie A or anything like that, you know, it was out there, but you had to, in some cases, really sort of work for it. Uh, and mm-hmm. even earlier, even more so, you know, sometimes you just have to rely on clip shows or you're just relying on reports, maybe some audio streaming, things like that. But now, I mean, just, you know, the popularity, thanks to technology, thanks to a broader sense of, hey, there's all these things, there's all these people out there, growth of American interest on a broad level in, uh, in, in teams and figures like whether it's Liverpool, whether it's Barcelona, Real Madrid, Juventus, you know, PSG, Arsenal, pick a team, <laughs> pick a star, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Leo Messi, uh, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and then there's always new upcoming stars. The point is now, again, before everything shut down as it did, you know, you can talk with ease about the fact that, oh, Liverpool going up against Manchester City again for the Premier League, and you will have people who know what you're talking about because the coverage is easy to find. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's right. heavily advertised. People are sort well, of reaching out to it. They've, they've found that sort of niche, and it's something that there's been a concurrent investment and, uh, and interest in that. Of course, interestingly, over here, the fact is is that it hasn't quite reached that level for Eurovision for various reasons. I mean, we saw what happened with the logo experiment for the past couple of years there, and that was handled very poorly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We saw it, but well, yeah, we didn't and, and, see it. That's <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm, Although, to go back to technology really quick, because um, I really think one of the things that's helped with the rise has been streaming technology. Yes. Because... You started watching 2007 when Finland, well, 2007 when, 2006, 2007, whenever Lordy won. Yeah, yeah, around that I started watching in 2008, and I remember in 2008 to watch the Eurovision Song Contest, and I caught like the last half hour, so just the the accounting portion in 2008, Mm -hmm. and went back. But you had to download the OctoShare plugin. Oh, that. You had to download a plugin (laughs) that would then work, and then just hung out on your computer for a year, and you didn't know what it did. Mm-hmm, and then, like, mm-hmm. flash forward two years later, Netflix started to get into streaming, uh, which to do that on a TV, if you had a Nintendo Wii, mm-hmm. Netflix would send you a disc in the mail that you could keep <laughs> and that you could put into your Wii to mm-hmm. use Netflix and stream. Wow. And, like, all of a sudden, and that, that was great, but all of a sudden I had to watch my bandwidth usage at my college to make sure I, I did not go over that by watching one too many episodes of 30 Rock or something. Hmm. Um. And it was the same with Eurovision is that I could watch the semifinals, but I would then have to make sure I was not doing a bunch of other video streaming that week. Uh, and like now I just wa- will just like watch five separate national files and like jump from channel to channel. Some of them are on YouTube. YouTube was not really a thing as of like 2007, 2008. That was new. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, true. And or just like all of the other broadcasters now have ways of watching Lithuanian television, for instance, mm-hmm. online in ways that we just did not have the technology to do mm-hmm. 10 years ago. It's it's interesting that there is such a, a willingness, I would say, uh, on the part of so many of the national broadcasters to invite people in 
Yeah, which is fascinating. I mean, you know, there are the, of course, VPN workarounds. Not that mm-hmm. I would know. Yeah, uh, I was say, what, what, uh, what are those? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, uh, but you, I mean, the fact is you still can get, uh, you still can go to a lot of them directly and just, you know, and, and get them, which is, you know, just a great relief. It's one of those things that, perversely, the fact that it is a much more smaller niche thing than, say, soccer probably means it's more things they can allow that sort of things to happen as opposed to something where, you know, where the money is more involved. It's like, you know, definitely lock it down. But well, I, well, you're you're right. Well, oh, no, yeah, go on, well, to go back to my Lithuanian television option, they will let you watch Pabandas now. They will not let you watch the Lithuanian dubbed version of Melissa McCarthy's The Boss immediately afterwards because that's rights. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. It's it's the it's the whole thing when a technology matures, I guess is the word. But the fact that uh, the fact that it grows to the point where something that was more expensive becomes much more common, much more everyday, which of course is a relative term. I mean, uh, let's take this back to America right now. Let's introduce some realism uh, into all this. Unavoidable but true is the fact that you have millions of people in this country who literally have no access to anything close to high and bandwidth internet. So, you know, it's one of those things that we have to always keep in mind that, you know, we're lucky to have it, but you have to be, you know, be aware, be aware of what you are. That said, the fact that you can do this, the fact that it is there, the fact that it is not something that is limited to, as you say, you know, getting a disc in the mail or having the right program or having the right hack or trying to figure out a way around the streaming, the this sort of like, you know, some dodgy site where you're sort of watching a mirrored thing and you're hoping that they haven't put malware on your computer and things like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we move beyond that point very thoroughly. And it's it's a recognition that the audience is there. And in terms of what individually gets more and more people interested in it, this may, I think, here's something I think is maybe not under discussed, maybe, more than that underrated. But I think it's something that I've seen more than once from people who are, who, who, a lot of whom I know, who are really hardcore, been watching for years and years or decades about Eurovision. And that is... On the one hand, you know, everyone's paying more attention now. On the other hand, what has that actually meant for the competition? And we've been talking about uh, we've been talking about pop forms, lingua franca, et cetera, things like that. What does that mean for a competition if everything's starting to become a little more smoothed out? If all the various forms we hear are the type of things that one can hear, one can expect to hear as pop music anywhere as opposed to something unique and distinct and that's why i think there's always been interest to the present day of anything that's not in english mm-hmm. uh in particular um mm-hmm. from from you know if you're talking about uh, countries participating beyond obviously um uh, the uk and ireland it's almost like people are like oh, how refreshing we're not getting another song in english which is a recognition of the dominance of english still in pop music and sort of like yeah well you know what can we you know can something break through on that level um and of course you know we saw portugal's win the other year of course we can it can happen but it almost seems to be more a matter of circumstance and you have a sense of sort of like something being lost on the one hand but maybe it's more just a figuring of how the competition and how tastes evolve on the other hand eurovision loves its own history and every year as you pointed out you know the campy old clips get shown and it's almost sort of like everyone's sort of still the idea of why can't there be stuff like that anymore but is is sort of like well, what is modern camp you know yeah. <laughs> what is what what is seriousness uh, how do we how do we judge it and you know there's a lot of issues there that i think need to be unpacked 
I will say this, though. I can I know at least one person who specifically got in because she thought Jedward were ridiculous and loved them for it. <laughs> yes. Yep. And, so the two, <laughs> yep. and so the two years that Jedward were in, she was like, I am all about this. And after that, she was just definitely just following it from here on in. So I think it's those kind of weird little hooks, those moments that happen. It was Lordy for me. It was Jedward for her. You just sort of encounter like, what? What is this? What's going on? It could be Conchita versed for someone else. Um, you know, it just sort of these things occur. These odd moments in time. These little sort of snap moments where you're like, "What? What happened?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and and it becomes compelling and it becomes weird. And the fact that something is over here is something that is not the Grammys or the MTV Video Awards or mm-hmm. whatever award show still has some sort of relative cachet. It's something different. It's something odd. There are people you haven't heard of or maybe have only heard of once or twice, if if that at all. And mm-hmm. there are hosts you never heard of. And the whole thing is like, what's going on? <laughs> and it's this weird little shock of the new, to a degree, that happens well, yeah, every and, time. And, I think and that's compared important. to like American reality shows, uh, it's done so efficiently. This is something that we'd string out for like six weeks at the minimum. Yeah, yeah. Completely agreed. And and that is another thing, too. I mean, I think, you know, we, we haven't brought it up, but, uh, you know, having talked about Kelly Clarkson way there at the back, you know, classic example, the rise of reality TV programming and music, um, mm-hmm. you know, success of American Idol. I mean, I clearly think that surely paved the way for a recognition, especially as so many of the equivalent programs now are the feeder zones for everyone who competes in Eurovision. It's kind of like, you know, this is understood now. What happened? Oh, they won that year. And oh, OK, got it. You're good. And then you just take it from there. Yeah. And kind of going back to the evolution of technology there, like just thinking back to American Idol and Ryan Seacrest explaining how texting works so that you could vote for Kelly Clarkson <laughs> or Clay Aiken or whoever. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's one of the other interesting aspects of your vision where it's just like its origins do go back to testing the limits of telecommunications technology and mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. feeding in on that and building upon it. Like it, it's... A weird it's it's a self-eating snake, but in a good way, I guess. Yeah. 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 Well, just thinking about the Norway's whole process this year, like Mm. one of the one of the historical moments they covered was like when they introduced televoting and broke the phone system in Norway. (laughs) (laughs) Never heard about that. That's hilarious. And and then the oh it was it was great that 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 the the very first like moments in Norwegian Eurovision history that they showed during like the very long six week processes here was the time that they broke things and then it was real sad when like during the final they broke things again but in a different <laughs> way <laughs> they had they kept the tradition going you see it's it's, it's now mm-hmm. part of what has to happen exactly <laughs> they, we, we have new new means of voting to to ruin and th- then just thinking about uh eurovision again this past weekend what was the 1997 contest which mm-hmm. watching that felt very different than watching either the 2015 or 2009 contests for me mm-hmm. Like, everything was very serious. I mean, everyone's styling choices were, were horrible, but that's fine. That was just 1997 <laughs> for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, just thinking about new new innovations, like five nations had were trying televoting for the first time, and they had to explain what that was. But it, it was a much more serious competition. It was a smaller theater. It was a lot of not a lot of the stuff that we we usually think of as Eurovision except for like the dragging out of former winners to well to well wish uh, the current ones and bucks fizz yeah (laughs) of course (laughs) of course yeah but it was also sticking to a lot of the traditions like that they still had the orchestra they still had the rule where you had to perform in a language like a dominant language of your country and Mm. 
not necessarily embracing any of the tenets of what pop music was in 97. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think, mm-hmm. like, which of those entries felt the most Hungry sent a boy band that felt that felt spot on for what was gonna what was gonna hit America in 1999. But they stood mm-hmm. up without a key change, and I was very troubled by that. <laughs> like, it's at the very there end of the song, rules. where like when yeah, uh, when yeah. that key change happens, that is when you stand up from your stools. There was no yeah, key change. It's like what is going on here? <laughs> and then I want to say it was Croatia sent a girl group that felt very Spice Girls, <laughs> mm-hmm. doing a song that did not feel very Spice Girls, but the styling was there. Yeah, I think it's just an interesting how innovation becomes like a set process because mm. by the time that, you know, the late nineties rolled around, you know, Eurovision was so well established that, uh, you know, these, these were the traditions and then they, you know, then everything mutated bit by bit <laughs> over time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just like a decade on from that, you've got Lordy with no orchestra, just doing their thing <laughs> so to, to pick one example. Of course, there are many others of uh, Veselka, et cetera. You know, I'm trying to put my finger on this. I think this distinction between nineties and now just to, just to just dwell on that is kind kind of a recognition uh, sort of like what were the bigger changes in the world we've discussed some of them and one of the biggest ones and you, uh, this is being touched on boy bands was basically uh, Sweden's domination of world pop Mm-hmm. <laughs> it basically started happening. It's sort of like, you know, Max Martin's, you know, some would call it the reign of terror. I would say it's just here. Here is somebody who is an incredibly talented person who can sort of work in all forms. And through that, just so many other things came out. It's almost like Sweden not winning as much anymore doesn't feel off. It's more like, look, they're baked into the DNA. Yeah. <laughs> it, re- mm-hmm. it really is the case. Something else occurred to me, too that uh, I mentioned Chris Melanfi in Hit Parade earlier. Um, his recent episode on what he called uh, the Latin Boom 1.0. The Latin Pop Explosion, yes. Yeah, yeah that. The, basically, everything that happened in the late 90s and the early 2000s with Ricky Martin, the rise of Shakira, etc., and all that, and all this music coming out, and listening to so much of that episode, uh, going through, I was going like, this feels like what Eurovision became. To a large degree, uh-huh. all these songs and these performers were, of course, transnationally m- monstrous. So it was one of those things you could sense that impact happening as well on what was going on with Eurovision down the line. So many of the songs feel like they could have been Eurovision entries in years after that. And to tie it in, what I was mentioning earlier, uh, who who writes uh, "Live and Love Vida Loca" and all that? Well, you've got Max Martin in there in the yep. mix. So you see, it's this, it's this, it's these little through lines. It's almost sort of like that. Uh, it's not that the past twenty years of Eurovision have been an after echo of that moment but you really get a sense of an actual transnational audience starting to really kick in on a massive level even before napster becomes a thing years before youtube becomes a thing it's like okay there's something in the air and the technology is letting it happen and the reflections are going to continue on out into something like eurovision and it pretty clearly did yeah I like the idea of Eurovision as like the ship of Theseus and that we've replaced one piece at a time over the years. And at some point it might be a different boat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, if everything's, if everything's replaced bit by bit, you almost don't notice it. You know, that's, that's the, I, I think that's an important thing too about pop getting back to the question of optimism and all that is this, we've been talking about how pop can incorporate anything and in, in anything. This is true. And yet there's something to be said about continuity in pop. Now, I'm speaking strictly of a, in this case, of a strongly English language perspective and an anglophonic one, so please keep that in mind. But it's not that you have songwriters like Irving Berlin these days, let's say, composing in exactly that form, but you have songwriters who are like Irving Berlin 
and many, many other people out there who are reacting to what's around them, synthesizing it in a form that is catchy, immediate, and fits within three to four minutes. And that may seem obvious, but it's worth underscoring. It's worth stating again. I mentioned Max Martin. He's certainly not the only one. In American terms, a classic example would have been, uh, RIP to him, Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne, mm-hmm. who even though he was working, you could argue, within more of a rock context, was over the past like three, three decades basically just working with a whole bunch of different artists in a variety of different ways just to sort of experiment with what's going on and to try out different forms. And you see this in Eurovision quite a lot. Um, Ireland's entry, uh, Lorena Ray, uh, has written for a whole bunch of different people. Same thing with the fella who did the, I'm sorry, it was a bit of a boring song, the UK entry guy this year, James, what's his name? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's a songwriter who works in these forms. And again, I'm not saying that all these people I mentioned are the equivalent of Irving Berlin. I'm merely noting that this comes back to this question of craft and working with things. And this is the continuity of pop as opposed to the innovation of pop. And the continuity of pop is who are the people who are listening to what's out there and bringing it into these new forms and working with other artists and finding the right person or just putting it out there and the right person who has the right delivery for it turns it into something. And I think that's vitally important. And that's part of the reason why I think... I think Eurovision feels both a combination of individuality and following forms. And that may, you can that's just the case with I think with pop music to begin with. He said yeah. firmly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, I'm done. <laughs> uh, Mike, any other questions? Yeah, I mean, I guess do you have any recommendations for podcasts or other sources to like learn more about like poptimism or this particular debate? Well, um, that's that's a good question that I don't think I have a good answer to right now because I'm not too sure where or how such a thing would be playing out. This is just mm. because I'm reflecting my age. <laughs> and uh, I think these are the type of discussions that you do get people, and you see this every so often, sort of like you still you still will find people, hip-hop, that's not real music. And But the fact of the matter is that the last person I saw arguing this in all true seriousness in a sense of he wasn't kidding about this, mm-hmm. was, of all people, the right-wing political commentator Ben Shapiro. And it's sort of like, huh. I don't need to get into discussion of optimism with this clown. <laughs> so, and it's just, that gives you an idea of how, like, you know, how limited the uh, mm-hmm. the idea of, of certain elements of this, uh, this can be. I mm-hmm. think you will get all sorts of arguments still over creativity versus just following the herd, cliches versus trying to innovate in almost any musical form these days to right. a degree the optimist debate is over because it kind of won in terms of in terms of uh, the breadth of attention that uh, writers can give it the fact that uh, pop artists can be considered more seriously the fact that you have many different uh, musicians old and young basically you know talking more openly about what inspires them and how it can be <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know stuff in the pop form mm-hmm. or if they're pop themselves so I, it's not that it's not it, it, this is it's one of those things I think generations will re-explore this question in their own way maybe this is a good way to sort of sort of describe the optimist argument in particular terms I can name people off the top of my head who are writers themselves or in bands or who are musicians who work in what can be called more indie rock contexts or like you know quieter more experimental contexts and yet at the same time are very, very open fans of not merely pop music, but Eurovision. Like some of these people I mentioned are just Eurovision addicts and mm-hmm. have watched for years and years and years. And there's no there's no difference. There's no distinction. Everyone has their own individual take on it. Everyone has their individual reasons for liking it. 
but the wider point is that uh, is that there's no shame about it. It's just something yeah. that's fun. Yeah, it's I mean, something to enjoy, and that's yeah. that's key. Yeah, in the articles that I read, like reading up for this episode, one of the one of the tenets that I came across several times was that there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure, which I know we've said on the show like several mm-hmm. times. And it's like, no, oh, I didn't is, realize I was is, such a optimist. <laughs> but that, yeah, that, yeah, that is something I've taken on certainly as like a personal thing is that guilty is that guilty pleasure shouldn't be guilty. But one thing that comes to mind that I think has like a nice Eurovision tie in, Mike, mm-hmm. and I think I may have suggested this to you when, when we were discussing this before the show and as to what you read about this is uh, Carl Wilson, I think originally mm-hmm. is part of the 33 and a third series and then mm-hmm. later expanded it into like a more fleshed out edition with some other writers in 2014, mm-hmm. uh, looked at Celine Dion's album, Let's Talk About Love, as part of that series and sort of used that as a diving board into the notion of taste and the why, mm-hmm. what do we why do we consider what we consider good taste what is good taste what is bad taste and it kind of goes into why is Celine Dion so popular if we think that her music is kind of cheesy and bad mm-hmm. yes it's an excellent book I do recommend it I've known Carl uh, for years he's a very good fella and uh, yes that expanded edition I particularly recommend precisely because of the variety of voices in response to it it is a moment in time now itself when it because uh, that edition was 2014 and uh, you know and then times and things continue to change and evolve from there but it is as good a a collection as any for a variety of critical voices looking into these uh, issues of uh, through a particular you could say rock critic friendly context let's you know be honest there music critic friendly maybe is a better way to put it I do recommend the book I think it'll be interesting to sort of see what more current versions of this will be like uh, with time and I think there are very different angles that that can go we'll have links to uh, all these articles and books and uh, things to look into uh, in our show notes Uh, Ned do you have anything that you'd like to plug or uh, have us link in the show notes as well yeah like where can people find you (laughs) where can people find me you can find me all too easily on twitter um, Ned Raggett, uh, the last name is R-A-G-G-E-T-T. In terms of my writing, I will share links to things I have published on Twitter. Uh, I also have a Patreon. Uh, this is, uh, you know, cheap deal, $5 a month. And it's just me. Just, it's, uh, I've had a variety of co- continuing projects ever since, uh, the quarantines kicked in. I've been doing a thing called, uh, COVID coping, uh, which is, uh, trying to post not every day, but, uh, doing as much as can one track per day by a particular artist who I really like trying to, uh, call attention to their work and things like that. So that way it's just sort of like, Hey, you know, here's some music out there. It can be new. It can be old. Here's reasons to enjoy it. It's partially me processing the current moment, but also just trying to not just simply be singing alone in the room. I'm just going, Ugh. and in terms of other things I do, I do have a podcast of my own, which has nothing to do with music, but if anyone is interested, uh, myself and my co-hosts, Oriana Schwint and Jared Pekacek, we have a podcast all about J.R.R. Tolkien, <laughs> Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and the whole nine yards, because we are all obsessed fans. That uh, podcast is called By the Bywater. It is uh, on the Megaphonic FM network. There are a couple of very, very good music uh, podcasts on that network as well, especially the one run by Michael Collins called This Is Your Mixtape, uh, which I really, really encourage. It's a very lovely way that uh, people have, and I've been a guest on there myself, how uh, people think about songs in their life. Uh, over time and what it mm. meant and how it uh, worked for them. It's uh, kind of, you could say, an equivalent of 
something like Desert Island Discs, but in a particular context here. Um, but mm-hmm. that's where, but uh, Megaphonics uh, by the Bywater is where you can find me. And oh, yeah, and they, uh, they have and, a Mystery Science Theater podcast I've enjoyed. Yes, and that's also where you can find It's Just a Show, the wonderful MST3K podcast, which is absolutely great. I That's another huge passion of mine. I'm glad someone did that podcast because otherwise I probably would have had to. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for this episode of The Euro What. Thanks for listening. The Euro What podcast is hosted by Ben Smith, that's me, and Mike McComb. That's me. You can find us on our website, eurowhat.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at EuroWhat. We'd love to hear your comments, questions, and ideas for topics we should talk about in future episodes. You can subscribe to The Euro What on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast app of your choice. We'll be back in two weeks to try and make sense of what's new in Eurovision. Thanks for joining us, Ned. All right, thank you. 